0: Hello and welcome to the Spirit Box podcast. Join me, Dara Masonfield, as we explore folklore, magic, and of course, the world of the spirits. While I was researching information on the jinn, I discovered a lot of the mythology around Manqqaf. And Manqqaf in Arabic tradition is a mysterious mountain, renowned as the farthest point of the earth owing to its location on the far side of the ocean and circling the earth. Because of its remoteness, the North Pole has been identified as the location of this mountain. It is also called the only place in the world where the rock will land. Now, Mount Quaff is also unique in the sense that it's believed to be the home of the jinn, or tribes of jinn, and there's quite a rich description used to describe the world of the the djinn that lies on Mount Khoaf and beyond, including great emerald mountains and cities where is a perpetual twilight. It, it it describes essentially essentially a folkloric cosmology. And it's this cosmology that led me to explore this particular concept in a a little bit deeper this idea of um the access of the world or the or the sacred mountain and that led me to the idea of rupus nigra or the uh, the myth of it rather so rupus nigra or which means black rock is a phantom island and it's believed to be uh, this giant black mountain located at the magnetic north pole or it is the north pole itself um so the rationale was, all compasses pointed to this area, so it must be a magnetic island. So it's a similar, it's a similar myth to the Persian and Arab myth of Mount Kuf. But one interesting thing about it is there's a particular book associated with Rupert Negra, which identified the island itself, the island mountain, rather, and and it led to this mountain being in maps up to the 17th century. So the idea came from a lost book called Inventio Fortunata, and the island featured on maps from the 16th to 17th centuries, including those of Geraldo's Mercator and his successors. And Mercator described the island in 1577 uh, in a letter to uh, Dr. John Dee. In the midst of the four countries is a whirlpool, into which there empty these 4 indrawing seas which divide the north, and the water rushes about and descends into the earth, just as if one were pouring it through a filter funnel. It is four degrees wide on every side of the pole, that is to say eight degrees altogether, except that right under the pole is where there lies bare a rock in the midst of the sea. Its circumference is almost 33 French miles, and it is all of magnetic stone. This is word-for-word everything that I have copied out of this author. And the author he's referring to is uh, Jacobus uh, Knoiden. It's quite interesting there that he's writing to John Dee and anybody who's studied magic or the occult in any degree should be aware of who John Dee is. Um, So this this particular myth takes an interesting turn. Here we see Mercator's map uh, of the Arctic and what it shows here is um, Rupus Negre and the four islands around it. So it's referred to as the pole Arcticus, which is clearly the North Pole of this island. So nothing is known of this particular island. There's, there's there's nothing clear about it. Yet it appeared in all these maps. So the lost book itself, Inventio Fortunata, uh, it's assumed to be dating from the fourteenth century and it contains this description of the North Pole as the magnetic island. So no direct extracts from the document have ever been discovered, but its influence on the Western idea of geography and the Arctic region persisted for several centuries. The book is said to be a travelogue written by a 14th century Franciscan friar from Oxford who travelled the North Atlantic region in the early 1360s, making some half a dozen journeys conducting business on behalf of the King of England, and that at the time was Edward III. He described what he's found on his first journey to the islands beyond the fifty-four degrees north in a book Inventio Fortunata, which he then presented to the king. Unfortunately, by the time Arctic explorers were seeking information in the 1490s, the Inventio had gone missing, and was only known through a summary in a second text, Itinerarium, written by a traveller named Jacob Scniden, and, uh, and summary was the basis for the depiction of the Arctic region on many maps the earliest being Martin Boheim's 1492 Globe, and by the late 16th century, even Huyden's text was missing. So most of what we know about the contents of Infantio Fortunata*, other than its use in maps, is found later uh, in a letter from the Flemish cartographer Mercator to uh, John Dee, um, which we mentioned. And that letter is now um, located in the British Museum. So Huyden's information came in a very roundabout way a priest from one of the Atlantic islands had returned to Norway and bringing with him an astrolabe which he received from a visiting Franciscan friar in exchange for a religious book. He made a detailed report to the King of Norway, copies still a survive of a social and geographical description of Greenland by a local church official named Ivar Bardason, who turns up in Norwegian records in 1364. So much of Noyden's story tallies well with reality, although this report does not contain the sort of personal information relayed by Goethe. Noiden seems to have obtained his information from Norwegian sources sometime later. Neither he nor the priest haven't actually seen the Inventio. Noyden's account, uh, originally in his own language, uh, translations that I'm about to read are based on uh, Eva Taylor's version. Noiden's account mixes probable fact uh, with what may have been his own attempts to research the background, stating that Greenland was first settled at the orders of King Arthur whose army supposedly conquered the North Atlantic Islands, he also referred to the indrawing Seas currents which drew ships northward, so that, and this is the quotation, nearly 4,000 persons entered the in-drawing Seas who never returned. But in AD 1364, eight of these people came to the King's Court in Norway. Among them were two priests, one of them, whom had an astrolabe, was descended in the fifth generation from a Brussels citizen. One, I say, all eight were from those who had penetrated the northern regions in the first ships. And that's quite interesting. The Indrawn Sea and some of the references here seem to kind of help support some of the ideas around that area, having an entrance into the inner Earth. Um, a, a particular theory, which I which I do deeply enjoy uh, reading about. So as I said, the, the influence on maps was massive. Where this led me to as well was, was thinking about well, the idea of the sacred map in cosmology and the sacred region in cosmology, because essentially Mount Coiffe is seen as the the borders of the world and a mountain range that supports the sky. And Rupus Negre has this idea of, of it being some sort of entrance or exit from, from this world. There's a, There's something of mystery and magic about it where the laws of nature seem to change, the inbound sea, the magnetic, Draw to the place, and off the back of that, I did a bit more research, and I came across a guy called Chet Van Druser, and he has written extensively about uh, maps and their place in history, and this is some really really interesting work. If you have a chance, have a look at some of his work on uh, Amazon. It's really interesting books uh, about cartography and. Um, the idea of like sea monsters on, on medieval and Renaissance maps. and I'm going to read some extracts of his, his work, the mythic geography of the Nolar, north, the mythic geography of the northern polar regions Inventio Fortunata, and Buddhist cosmology. Sacred centers are usually located near the people in whose mythology they play a part. but there are distant spots on the earth that many pe- different peoples recognize have a special central status: the north and south poles. These spots are pierced by the axis of the heavens. They are the crowns of the world, about which all the stars dance. The points to which all compasses direct their needles. The recognition of the centrality of the Earth's poles is reflected in one of the names of the sacred centres, Axis Mundi, as well as in various attempts to connect sacred centres with the poles. The city of Beijing is known as the pivot of the four quarters, and the sacred centre of the city, the forbidden city, is more precisely known as the Purple Forbidden City, purple being the symbolic colour of the North Star, and the designation Purple Forbidden City, thus signifying that the Emperor's residence is at the centre of the world. There was also a 9th century Islamic tradition argued by al kisa al Kufa, that the Kaaba in Mecca, for which the centre of the earth is a common epithet among Muslims, is located directly beneath the North Star. Symbolism of or connection with the pole is often ascribed to local sacred centres, while the pole itself, until this century, both in belief and in fact unattainable, has received little mythological attention as a centre. I will examine two systems of mythology relating to the northern polar regions, systems which, true from very different cultures, turn out to be remarkably similar. Geraldus Mercator is perhaps the only figure in history of cartography whose name has become a household word and his system of map projection called the mercator projection is still widely used today albeit usually in slightly modified forms mercator was famous for his meticulous research and accuracy and thus it is quite surprised to see for the first time mercator's map of the northern polar regions i'm not going to be able to pronounce the map as its title is in latin but it was published in 1595. And on this map, uh, you'll see the, the, uh, the North Pole is very unfamiliar to modern eyes. As, as we mentioned this before, at the centre of the map, right at the pole, stands a huge black mountain. Its mount, this mountain is made of lodestone, the magnetic stone, and is the source of the Earth's magnetic field. The central mountain is surrounded by open water and then further out by, by four large islands that form a ring around the pole. The largest of these islands, perhaps 700 by 1,100 miles, and they all have high mountains along their southern rims. These islands are separated by four large inward-flowing seas, which are aligned as if to the four points of the compass. Though, of course, there is no north, east or west of the North Pole, every direction from its centre is south. Mercator notes inform us that the waters of these oceans carried northward to the Pole, and through these rivers with great force, such as no wind could make a ship sail against the current. The waters then disappear into an enormous whirlpool beneath the mountain at the pole and are absorbed into the bowels of the earth. Mercator also tells us that a four foot tall pygmies inhabit the island closest to Europe. More remarkable than the map itself is the fact that many other contemporary maps, maps by the most respected cartographers of the time, show very similar configuration around the North Pole. Martin Behaim, who died before Mercator was born, made a famous globe in 1492. This is, in fact, the oldest surviving terrestrial globe. That shows land surrounding the North Pole. There are two large islands right near the Pole and in the Western Hemisphere, while extensions of Europe and Asia reach northwards, so as to form, together with the two islands just mentioned, a broken circle of land around the Pole. A world map by Johannes Reich, the Universa Cognitas Orbis Tabula, published in an edition of Ptolemy's Geographia in Rome 1508, shows four islands around the North Pole. Two, the one north of Greenland and opposite across the pole are labelled Insula Deserta, and the one north of Europe is that of the Hyperboreans, and the one north of America is labelled Aronphi. He labels the waters within the four islands as the Mare Sujinum and speaks of a violent whirlpool that sucks the incoming waters down into the earth. In addition, his map shows a ring of small, very mountainous islands around the four islands, which numerous islands, R- Rushek says, are uninhabited. So you can see we start to form a mystic cosmology that existed um, up into the 17th century. There's the land of the hyperboreans. There's a ring of uninhabited mountainous islands and a treacherous whirlpool and absolutely and an absolutely violent sea surround this area. So it, it's it's kind of an other world, almost kind of land of the dead, um where human beings can't possibly exist. And that makes a good kind of liminal step into other worlds this place where all things in, within the earth are drawn into and beneath the, the the magnetic force that that points there all compasses point there and then there's the tempestuous terrible waters you know that that surrounded protected and um, prevented human beings from from passing through or indeed getting back as in the aforementioned disastrous trip in croydon's account earlier where 4,000 persons entered the Indrawing Sea, but, but never returned. So from this first globe, published in 1492, right up to the 1700s, this configuration of islands around the pole featured in literally scores of maps. Um, so the suggestion that there must be a large mountain of lodestone at the North Pole to account for the Earth's magnetism goes back at least to the 13th century, not long after the invention of the compass. But what was the source of the four islands and the inward flowing rivers? Of the mountains and the pygmies? Murgator cites his authority for the delineation of the northern regions in the itinerarium of the Flemish traveller Jacobus Noyden, which, as we said already, is is a lost uh, that summary no longer exists. Coydon gave his sources the Res Geste Artori Britanni, also lost. This is a book written by an English Minerite, a mathematician from Oxford, who had traveled far north in 1360 and recorded what he saw. And this work was called the Inventio Fortunata. So this is the source that Coydon cites. Also, uh, Mercator and his contemporaries believed the author of the Inventio Fortunata, the English Minerite, the friar, to be Nicholas de Lina, Nicholas of King Lin. Others have argued against this identification. Thus, the source of the mythical polar geography is a lost work by an unknown author in the 14th century. Nonetheless, it is possible to speculate about where the author of the Inventio Fortunato may have derived this geography. Nansen has found mentions of a great northern whirlpool in Norse legends of the world's well, the Hervgelmir, which caused the tides by pushing and pulling water through its subterranean channels. The Topographica Hypernica by Geraldus Cambrenus in 1146 to, to 1220. His description of the northern whirlpool is cited by Mercator and the, the Historia Norvega 1180 and the Speculum Regale 1250 of Einar Gunnarsson, and particularly interesting quote from the Lango- Langobard author Paulus Fridi, 720 to 790, also called Diaconus. And this is the quote And not far from the shore, which we before spoke of, on the west, where the ocean extends without bounds, is that very deep abyss of waters which we commonly call the ocean's navel. It is said twice a day to suck the waves into itself and to spew them out again as is proved to happen along all these coasts where the waves rush in and go back in again with fearful rapidity. By the whirlpool of which we have spoken, it is asserted that ships are often drawn in with such rapidity that they seem to resemble a flight of arrows through the air, and sometimes they are lost in the gulf with a frightful destruction. Often, just as they are about to go under, they are brought back again by a sudden shock of the waves, and they are sent out again hence with the same rapidity with which they were drawn in. The persistence of the inventio fortunato geography on maps say for 150 years is to some extent a testament to the esteem in which mercator and ortelius were held by other cartographers the inventio fortunato places a a mountain at the pole and of course many sacred centers are mountains a passage into the depths of the earth is another common feature of sacred centers moreover the powerful flow of water from the four corners of the earth In through the rivers to the Pole, and there down a whirlpool, is the strongest possible confirmation and emphasis of the Pole's centrality. As strong almost as the thought of a million Muslims facing Mecca from all corners of the Earth five times a day in prayer. This role the North Pole plays in circulation of the Earth's waters gives the spot the global importance we expect of a sacred centre. Also, a number of sacred centres seem to be connected with primal waters. The Garden of Eden again? the rock of the Temple of Jerusalem, which closes the mouth of the Thaum, the watery chaos beneath the earth that was involved in Noah's flood, Ushnach Hill in Ireland, the seat of the Stone of Divisions, and the centre of Ireland according to the division of the country made by the god Fitnan, a son of Ocean, who was also the source of the waters of the deluge, and the mountain Harati, or Alborz, to the east of Iran which is the navel of waters, as the fountain of all water springs here. Thus, the surprisingly long survival of the Inventio Fortunato geography reflects the mythological power of that geography. It asserted a polar configuration consistent with people's expectation for one of the two spots on the planet pierced by the celestial axis. The other example of northern polar mythology I would like to examine is the Brahmic Hindu and Buddhist conception of the Earth. Brahma Hindu and Buddhist mythology is very complex, partly because of the creativity of Indian mythographers, which results in many different versions of each myth, partly because Indian mythographers rarely abandon old ideas and theories and just continue to present them as alongside new ideas, even when the new and old were inconsistent. The complexity may increase even further when one cosmological scheme, for example, for instance, is presented not merely alongside another, but encapsulated within another. In Brahmic Hindu and Buddhist belief, the Earth's sacred center is quite unusually, not near at hand, but far off to the north on a separate unattainable continent. The center of it is Mount Meru, or Sumaru, or Sinaru, and it is the Axis Mundi, the fixed point about which the heavens revolve. Its summit is the dwelling place of the tra- Yishtraimasa gods, the highest of the sixth Buddhist world of gods. According to the four-continent Earth model, The earth's continents are arranged in the form of a lotus flower. Mount Meru stands at the centre of the world, the periscarp, or the seed vessel of the flower, as it were, surrounded by circular ranges of mountains. Around Mount Meru, the petals of the lotus are arranged in four island continents, aligned to the four points of the compasses. Sounds pretty familiar. Uttarakuru to the north, Ketumala, and Aparagoyana to the west, Bahadrasa and Puvidya to the east, and Baharata and jambuita to the south. jambuita is part of the world inhabited by humans. The dimensions for all these elements are fantastic. Mount is 84,000 Johannes or, 400 or 420,000 miles high, Uh, The island continent of Jambodipa, which includes India, is 10,000 johannas, 50,000 miles in extent, with an area occupied by the Himalayan range and human habitations being 3,000 johannas, 15,000 miles in extent. The level of detail and descriptions of all these mythical regions is astonishing. There are named mountain ranges, rivers, races of semi-divine beings everywhere, and we learn the height of each of the race, how long they live, the shape of their faces. In addition, it was held that on or near Mount Nimro was Lake Anotata, or Anotwat, which was the source of the world's rivers. The lake is surrounded by a mountainous rim, and through rocky openings in this rim, shaped like the heads of an ox, horse, lion and elephant, four rivers flow south, east, north and west respectively. These rivers flow three times around Anotata in spirals and then continue in their original direction towards the four cardinal points. The river flowing to the south from the ox's head is the Proto-Ganges. After dashing against a mountain, spurting high, 60 Yoannas or 300 miles into the air, falling back to the earth and following an underground course, it emerges to form five rivers whose names can be traced to the rivers in northern India, namely the Ganges and its tributaries. Mount Miru is at the point about which the heavens revolve, the axis Monday, and thus something very similar to the North Pole of the Buddhist and Hindu universe. Indeed, the North Star was held to stand directly above Mount Miru, linked by ropes of wind to all the heavenly bodies. The spot beneath the North Star should, according to our conceptions, be the North Pole, but the cosmographical texts in this tradition hold that the Earth is a flat disk or shallow bowl, and thus the concept of a North Pole is absent. The continent Utarakuru was held to be north of Mount Muru and indeed the particle Utara means north. However there's a very long tradition of Indian cosmological globes such globes or buhugolas were known were known to the Indian astronomer Arabata and are frequently described in medieval Indian texts. Transferring the terrestrial features of Hindu cosmology from a flat disk to a sphere required a number of changes the most important of which was mount nuru was moved to the north pole the similarities between inventio fortunata and the brahmic hindu and buddhist concepts of the northern polar regions of the earth should by now be obvious both place a large mountain at the pole surrounded by four islands aligned as if to the four points of the compass from one mountain radiates the earth's magnetic field the other is the pivot of the universe the home of the divine and while The Inventio Fortunata has the waters of the world's oceans flowing in towards the pole from the four quarters and down into the earth. The Buddhist conception has a large lake with four huge rivers flowing out to the four corners of the earth. Of course, there are many differences between the two conceptions. The one is secular or geographical mythology, the other divine. And there are differences of scale, differences in degree of elaboration, the difference between the water flowing in and the water flowing out, and others but the similarities are impressive. To attempt to argue that the inventio fortunato was by some circuitous means derived from a Buddhist conceptions of the northern polar regions would be at best a highly precarious undertaking. Quite aside from the inherent improbability of such an influence, when the work itself is lost and its author is uncertain, no such argument can have a foot to stand on. I am inclined rather to see the fact that two or so similar mythographies of the northern polar region should arise and persist in two so different cultures as a testament to the creativity of these two cultures and to the degree to which these mythologies match our innate transcultural conception of what a sacred center should be. So that's the end of that article with uh, my apologies for my uh, impromptu commentary midway. Um, So again the author is Chet Van Dooser, and he's got some very interesting books that are worth checking out on um, on Amazon. I suppose the final commentary from me: I, I find it really interesting that there's the cosmology uh, lacking from uh, Mr. Dooser's essay is Mount Quef, which is also <laughs> which is also based in the North Pole, as I mentioned at the start of this 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 video. I find that really intriguing. So you, you've ended up with Brahmic, Hindu, Buddhist. Um, The Christian world's view of the north and then you have an Islamic myth as well and I do think there's some interconnectivity there that perhaps the root of these ideas have a common source but that's utter conjecture. The relationship to the four cardinal points, the relationship to water, the idea that there is this enormous mountain there and the idea that this is a place of liminality, that it is a crossroads between our world and another either the interior or of the world or the divine makes it a very special place be that one solely existing in myth it's a really interesting concept to to look at and there there still is some mythology there still is some mythology around the north Pole. we still have a our, our own modern myths you know obviously the obvious one is of course that it is the home of, of santa claus um, you know, our Yuletide King, a mythical being that lives in the North and that is capable of, of traversing the world in one night. Um, that's a big myth, but beyond that there's also kind of the modern, more conspiratorial myths, where there, there's an international agreement that does not allow for flights across or over the North Pole. That there is no aerial photography of the North Pole, there's no satellite photography of the North Pole. And this kind of supports the whole idea that there is a a, an entrance to an inner earth there um i'm not saying there is or not as i obviously never commit to anything um but i do like the idea of it it is an intriguing uh it's an intriguing thing and certainly uh whenever i see anything about the inner earth i'm i want to read more i want to i want to find out more is there an entrance to agartha um so that's it i think that's and that's all i have for this video it's uh just a really interesting juxtaposition through lost books unknown authors and then this weird um configuration of buddhist islamic hindu cosmologies uh mapped across this christian mythography if you enjoyed the video by all means do subscribe for more Uh, leave a comment below if you've got anything else to add and uh, talk soon